everyone. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, thanks for joining the, uh, this uh, wonderful program um, with these fine panelists that are uh, it's being presented by the uh, BBA's uh, Consumer Bankruptcy Section. I just want to uh, make you aware of um, two uh, upcoming events sponsored by the BBA. Now that we have a captive audience, I want to tell you about a couple of other things coming up. We have on uh, December 16th, Wednesday, December 16th, um, at 5.30 p.m. to uh, 7 p.m. Uh, we have uh, speed networking with bankruptcy attorneys. Uh, and on January 21st, uh, we're we are privileged to have uh, 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 the Honorable uh, Judge Bostwick and uh, the Honorable uh, Judge Hoffman um, for a, a virtual lunch bunch. Uh, that's Thursday, January 21st at 2.30. And so December 16th at 5.30 for the speed, speed networking at Lunch Bunch, the 21st of January, Thursday at 2.30 uh, for Lunch Bunch. And uh, so be sure to, uh, to uh, try to tune into those. As for today's panel, um, we're, uh, we're very uh, privileged to have um, uh, a panel of Chapter 7 trustees in the uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We have uh, Don Lastman first. Don is a solo practitioner in Needham, concentrating his practice the areas of bankruptcy, insolvency, and business reorganization. Don was the first recipient of the Bankruptcy Court's uh, Pro Bono Public Award. Public Award. He is a fellow of the Ameri American College of Bankruptcy and has been a panel trustee uh, for the District of Massachusetts since 1995. So welcome, Don. Thank you so much for your time. Um, then we have uh, Ann White. She is of counsel at uh, the Boston firm DeMeo LLP. She's been with DeMeo for 10 years and she specializes in business and commercial litigation, bankruptcy, employment law, and white collar defense. She mostly focuses her practice in the representation of debtors and secured and unsecured creditors in chapter seven, 11, and chapter 13 proceedings. Uh, Ms. White is a member of the Boston and Massachusetts Bar Associations, the member of ABI, uh, International Women's Insolvency and Restructuring Confederation, and she has served uh, a co-chair of the Boston Bar Association's bankruptcy section from 2003 to 2005. Uh, welcome, Anne. Thank you for joining us. And we have uh, uh, Jonathan Goldsmith, who's the managing partner at Goldsmith, Katz, and Arginio, PC. Uh, uh, he's for over 30 years. Uh, John's been practicing, uh, focused on bankruptcy and commercial law, representation of debtors, representation of debtors, creditors, trustees, financial institutions, and creditors uh, committees. Uh, in 2013, um, Jonathan was honored as the first recipient of the Massachusetts Bankruptcy Court Pro Bono Award for Western Massachusetts. So uh, thank you all for your time and thank you all for tuning in. This is going to be a great panel. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Don. Great. All right. So, uh, Jacob, thank you so much. We appreciate your allowing us to uh, make this presentation. Uh, and we have three trustees to provide tips, things that we see that... Um, uh, commonly come up and um, kind of how to, how to avoid those issues so that your case proceeds as smoothly as you expect it to and your client expects it to. Um, I'm going to be covering uh, the period of time before the petition is filed um, and then um, uh, Jonathan and Ann will be file, uh, covering from filing date to 341 meeting and then after the 341 meeting. So we've kind of segmented into three spots. Um, so I'm going to talk about before filing. And uh, the thing that, um, as a trustee, I frequently see is um, informational glitches. So um, as, we, as we say here, um, your client will tell you things, um, which is fine, 
uh, but you really have to adopt a show me attitude and you have to stick to your guns because sometimes clients um, are not keen on providing information they'd rather tell you as opposed to show you. Um, if you're from Missouri, it's the show me state and that's really what you need to do. You need to see the documents. So it's, it's really, it's verifying everything. And what does that mean? Um, and these are issues that have come up in chapter seven cases that have led to asset cases that would not have otherwise been had that little investigation been done. So I think the areas where I, I find the most frequent problems develop, um, a debtor owns a car uh, or debtor has a car. So is the car leased or is the car owned? And many de debtors do not understand the difference between that. Uh, they also don't really pay much attention as to whose name the car is actually titled in. So those things, you, you need to kind of, you need to figure those things out and have them correct before the case is filed um, so that you don't have to amend uh, and you may not have an asset that you need to exempt, but you've otherwise used your exemption on other things. Um, if they have an apartment, see the rental agreement. Is there a security deposit? You know, dig into those kinds of things. Um, for all the debt, everyone now has to obtain credit report. And I insist on copies of, uh, of the bills um, for, for several reasons. One, in, in some cases, I've found that uh, debtors are unaware that others beside themselves are responsible for the obligation. So that the bankruptcy of uh, Mrs. A leads to problems for uh, Mrs. B uh, because they're both together joint obligors, but they never really focused on that. Uh, so I think credit reports can reflect that typically, not always, uh, but the bills definitely will. Uh, and I seek the, the bills because I want to make sure that I'm providing proper notice to the creditor. Almost all creditors now uh, will have a bankruptcy notification address. You won't know it. You're not, you don't want to use the post office box for payment. You want to use the bankruptcy address because you want to make sure the creditor has received proper notice of the bankruptcy filing so that their debt is discharged. So there are things that you can do to help out. Bank accounts. Um, I, um, I typically, I always uh, want to see uh, at least one year of bank account statements. That's that any bank account that the debtor has check writing authority on. So if the debtor um, is involved in a sole proprietorship or a some type of a corporate venture, something like that, I want to see the um, bank statements and cancel checks because most trustees ask for them. Uh, and if you've looked through them before, then you know what's there. Um, if there's a problem, you can solve it before you file, or you may want to delay your filing. So a lot of these things will lead to um, uh, concern, issues of timing. Um, if you've seen the documentary evidence beforehand, then, then you, know how to, you, know, you know how to deal with things. Uh, divorce agreements are frequently an area that um, I find uh, people uh, run into difficulty with. Um, in many cases, counsel has not, have not read the agreement. So I'll find agreements that provide for payments to be made um, at some time in the future or perhaps were to be made that were not made uh, that could lead to a recoverable asset for the bankruptcy estate. Uh, you've got to read those agreements top to bottom uh, and any amendments to them or changes to them. You have to be very careful uh, to make sure that you're getting everything that you, know, that, that you need, the information that you want to have. Um, real estate, um, I think 
um, is uh, another can be another problem area typically because council has not explored the nature of the of the debtor's interest in the real estate so uh, I think that um, I always obtain a, um, a title rundown so I um, have title rundown there are people that perform title rundowns they're not expensive particularly and you're talking about the real estate real estate for a debtor which is could be their predominant, if not most important asset that they have. Um, and rundowns are typically under $100. Uh, and I wanna be able to look at all of the documents on record. So I make sure I know how the debtor owns the property, whether there's been any changes to the ownership during the time the debtor owned the property, what the liens are, whether I may have liens to avoid. So I think that that is very, and, and whether there's a homestead declaration, right? So all of these things will come from the record and it's worth getting a, a title. Many registries are online as well. Some are more cumbersome than others. Um, so I like the rundown, uh, but in some cases I'll do, I can do the work myself as well. But I think you always wanna do that. Um, the other item that is, um, I frequently see are trusts. So I think that, um, I think trusts are becoming more prevalent, not less. Um, as we have an aging population and more assets are transferring from one generation to another. And the trust agreements um, and any amendments to the trust um, are very important to read and understand. Whenever I have a trust, I will always communicate with the party that drafted the trust, right? There's a trust attorney that did this. And so why did they do it? And what was the plan? And what do they think about how assets will be um, dispersed under the trust? What powers do people have under the trust? How can those powers be exercised? As a bankruptcy trustee, if the debtor has powers uh, under the trust, I can exercise those in some cases. Um, you wanna know if there's a Spencer provision, which can take the trust outside property of the estate, but these trusts are very important to understand prior to the time of the filing so that you know how to list it and you also know the impact that bankruptcy may have on it. Uh, the presence of trusts in cases have led to several of the biggest asset cases I've had. Uh, and it's just, it had the trust been reviewed in advance, uh, perhaps the bankruptcy would never have been filed or might've been filed at a different time, uh, later time. Uh, so I think it's that, that accumulation of information so that you can properly uh, advise the client, get everything properly scheduled, um, and, and have everything properly exempted um, is really kind of, that's really the most important thing that, uh, or the most important item that you're performing. Now, some particular pr practice pointers I would add in addition to, in addition to what I've said, um, I think with respect to real estate and mortgages, um, I th you have to pay careful attention to the uh, document. Is it fully executed and is it executed properly, right? So, Many trustees um, are attacking mortgages that have faulty notarizations. Um, I'm still finding those. I get probably, I'd say one every other rotation. There's a faulty mortgage notations are still prevalent, um, particularly when I'm seeing notaries that may have been made out of state. So the form of the mortgage, the notarization might have taken place, might not have taken place in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Typically Commonwealth of Massachusetts, they're okay, but sometimes the mortgages are being executed out of state because the person is out of state and moving to Massachusetts. So you have to, you have to look carefully um, at those kinds of things. 
Um, unusual transactions in bank statements, I think you really got to pay attention to that. Um, I think um, uh, perfection of liens on motor vehicles, I've had some issues with respect to that. So if there's a lien on the motor vehicle, you want to confirm that that is in fact the case so that the debtor is not in jeopardy of losing their motor vehicle because the lien is improperly perfected and there may be a substantial amount of equity in the motor vehicle. Uh, I think those are kind of the, the, key, the key things that I have seen that frequently arise that will throw, um, uh, throw debtor's counsel off at a, uh, at a credit meeting. Ann or Jonathan, anything you want to add that you see as practice pointers that come up during your 341 meetings? Sure, I have a couple, uh, Don, that have come up um, somewhat recently. Uh, one in particular that uh, I've gotten probably about three or four cases, cases in which the, um, had been closed some time ago, and I am notified that the debtor um, held or holds a claim for a medical device, for example, an artificial knee that's been um, surgery and uh, they implanted an artificial knee that there's been some uh, medical device uh, uh, claim that ha class action that's been uh, uh, that the debtor has been a party of um, those have popped up recently where I am notified by the agent that's uh, in charge of dispersing uh, the settlement proceeds uh, they do a search to determine that in fact the debtor had filed bankruptcy and uh, this claim uh, arose prior to the filing of the bankruptcy uh, so I've reopened cases and have um, uh, pr provided uh, funds for the bankruptcy estate as a result of those settlements. So it's one of those things that you need to ask. Sometimes the debtors, frankly, uh, don't realize uh, at the time that they file bankruptcy that there is this potential claim and then they join the class action sometime thereafter, but it does become an asset of the bankruptcy estate if the uh, cause of action arose uh, beforehand. The other thing that uh, has come up um, and, and as representing debtors, I always try to um, make sure we uh, inquire of the debtors before we file the bankruptcy petition. Uh, parents sometime for estate planning purposes will transfer their, uh, their residence uh, to their children and retain a life estate. So that remainder interest is an, an asset of the debtor's estate. And I have been successful in actually uh, selling that remainder interest, obviously subject to uh, the, the uh, debtor's parents' ability to live there for the rest of their life, but that there are companies out there that will buy that remainder interest and just sit there until either uh, the life um, estate individual is no longer uh, residing there or uh, the other family members that may hold an interest in the estate uh, want to buy out that non-family member that uh, that holds that. So those are two of the things that uh, I just encourage uh, the practitioners to inquire about um, uh, before they uh, um, push the button and file the petition on behalf of their clients. And anything you want to add? Yeah, I would just add um, insurance policies, both life insurance and property insurance. If you get the document in terms of property insurance, you want to look at the rider. You want to be sure that they don't have a, you know, a million dollar uh, jewelry rider on the, po uh, your client has that rider on the policy and yet they've told you they don't have any jewelry. You, you wanna be sure that um, you've checked their insurance policy. And then when it comes to life insurance, um, recently I had lovely clients, but they were certain it was a term policy and it wasn't, it was a whole life policy. So insurance, and that's ex it turned out to be exempt, that was fine. But you want to know in advance what kind of insurance the folks have and, and what are the actual terms and, and what are the actual assets underlying those policies. 
Yeah, I would add one thing, and that is for practitioners filing corporate cases under Chapter 7. They're not frequent, but they do happen. Um, pay particular attention to the uh, corporate tax return, most recently filed corporate tax return. Most corporate tax returns have a balance sheet. They will reflect assets and liabilities, and many times one of the assets that the corporation has may be a loan to shareholder. So I, I'm finding not infrequently, probably three, you know, three or four cases a year where a corporate case gets filed, um, there are no loans to shareholders listed as an account receivable. Um, in the corporate case, I look at the tax return and there is a loan receivable from the, from the uh, officer. Now, there may be offsetting loans to the corporation, but had all of that been vetted in advance and the books and records brought up to date, then there wouldn't have been an issue. Uh, so I think you have to pay careful attention to tax returns, personal tax returns for the same reason, uh, but certainly on the corporate side to see what ramifications the corporate bankruptcy filing might have for the principals. In many cases, the principals are insolvent too, and they may end up filing bankruptcy also, uh, but do pay attention to that. I just want to uh, say two other things. I'm going to turn over to uh, Jonathan. Make sure your information is up to date. Um, with everything being done by Zoom now, um, I'm finding that the interview process and then the time from interview to information gathering to filing is getting longer and longer. It's just a really gritty process now. It just seemed to be faster. Now it's not so much. So the information has to be up to date. So you want to make sure you're keeping it up to date. So when you file, what you're filing is as of that date and not when you started the information gathering process nine months before, because many things would have changed. And then you'll come to the 341 meeting and the debtor says, oh, I don't own that car anymore. I sold that and got another one. Now it may not mean anything, but it might. Um, so you have to watch that. Um, uh, you have to watch that uh, uh, very carefully. Um, Jonathan, I'll turn it, I think I'll turn it over to you now um, for um, from the filing date to the 341 meeting. Great. Uh, thank you, Don. Uh, what I'm going to go through is just uh, as a result of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, the, the 341 meeting structure has changed a little bit. So uh, during the course of my discussion today, I'm going to go through the uh, process so everybody's uh, on the same uh, page in terms of how that process uh, has changed since the, uh, the COVID-19. So let me begin by just uh, bringing everybody up to speed in terms of, uh, I think everybody should be aware that's on this conference that the court, shortly after the bankruptcy case is filed, the court will generate a notice called the 341 uh, meeting uh, notice to creditors. Now, under uh, bankruptcy rules 2002 and 2003, uh, the court is required in, in a Chapter 7 case to provide notice uh, no fewer than 21 days and no more than 40 days after the order for release is filed to send out that notice uh, to creditors and parties of interest. Uh, I mention this to you because um, obviously uh, debtors counsel and the creditors will have, on average, at least 30 days notice before the filing, uh, uh, before the 341 meeting is, is held. Um, oftentimes, I will receive a phone call uh, a day or two before the 341 meeting from a uh, debtor's counsel asking if they could postpone uh, the 341 meeting because there's a conflict. Uh, I am amenable to that, but if you know about a conflict uh, in advance, it behooves everybody to uh, give us advance notice. And what I generally require that the debtor's counsel then reschedule, I'll give you the schedule reschedule date, which is usually my next rotation date, uh, date and time. And it's, 
I require that the debtors council send out a, um, a notice of the rescheduled 341 meeting and file a certificate of uh, service with the court for that. So the sooner you know if there is a conflict that can't be changed uh, and you can't, or you or your client cannot attend the 341 meeting, please let let um, let me know. Let uh, the other trustees uh, feel uh, the same way in terms of that. Uh, now, uh, prior to the section 341 meeting, uh, and not later than seven days before the meeting is held, uh, debtors are required to remit to the trustee a copy of the debtor's federal income tax return or uh, a transcript of such return and copies of all payment advices received within two days before the date of the filing of the petition. Uh, now, what I have seen uh, lately for some reason is I will get a copy, and this may uh, tie into what Don uh, said in terms of the way uh, sometimes these things are prepared uh, or the meeting with the debtor is several months before the actual petition is filed and there's a delay and the actual tax return, uh, the latest one has already been filed with the taxing authority, but I, what I receive is the, the prior year. And that same thing with uh, pay stubs. Uh, please make sure that the pay stubs are the 60 days prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. I get those, uh, oftentimes I will get pay stubs that are, uh, you know, have um, a date that uh, is several months prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. So it's again, it's 60 days uh, prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. Uh, just as a, a reminder that when you send the tax returns and uh, pay advices to uh, the trustee, make sure that you redact all uh, numbers, social security numbers, uh, children's name and social security numbers that may be on the tax return um, and, um, and, and, and go through each of the pages and make sure you do that, okay? I accept uh, fax, some trust uh, uh, or email or hard copies of all those documents, but whatever way you send them to me, uh, please uh, make sure that information is redacted. Now, um, as many of you, again, are aware that as a result of the pandemic, 341 meetings are now uh, conducted telephonically. Uh, the U.S. trustee program has established a standard operating procedure for conducting these telephonic 341 meetings. Uh, these have been in place since, I believe, uh, April or May uh, timeframe and will continue for at least 60 days after the lifting of the president's proclamation of declaring a national emergency concerning the, the coronavirus, uh, which uh, that uh, that declaration was issued on March 13, 2020. So uh, what we're hearing from the Office of the U.S. Trustee that this telephonic 341 meeting is likely going to take place for some period of time or continue for some period of time. Um, some of you may not have been involved in actually a three, telephonic 341 meeting. So I thought for benefits of all participants today, I would summarize the procedure and share with you some observations of having conducted these meetings over the past several months now. Uh, as has been the uh, process before the COVID-19, uh, the bankruptcy clerk's office again will issue a, a notice of the 341 meeting. The notice now has changed a little bit, and I'm gonna ask Don just to pull up the notice of the 341 meeting so I can point that out. So 
So this is uh, just a recent one that I had, and I obviously redacted the names. But Don, if you'll scroll to the second page of the notice, I just want to point out, uh, yeah, a little further. If you'll notice we're on section seven, where it says meeting of creditors, um, it says the meeting, and of course, my uh, screen is covering it, but uh, it, the meeting will be held telephonically. Uh, and the dial, uh, it indicates that the dial-in number and participant code for the telephone will be provided within seven, 14 days before the meeting. I honestly don't know why they can't now put it on the notice itself, uh, but uh, the notice doesn't provide that information. Uh, so what happens, again, at least uh, 14 days, two weeks prior to the Section 341 meeting, the Chapter 7 trustee will post on the docket a statement of dial-in information containing the toll-free conference phone number and the participant code. The U.S. Trustee's Office has assigned each of the panel trustees with a toll-free number and a uh, participant code. So each one of us has a uh, separate number that, uh, that participants can dial into. Uh, I find it just as an aside, it's probably a little bit difficult for creditors to uh, participate in these 341 meetings than it was before because then the only way they could uh, um, obtain this information is actually get on PACER and get that toll-free number and the participant number. But um, as it stands right now, that information is not on the 341 meeting notice, but is put on the docket, like I said, um, it, by uh, the trustees 14 days, at least 14 days before the 341 meeting is uh, originally scheduled to be held. Um, now, at least one business day or 24 hours before the scheduled 341 meeting, whichever is greater, the debtor's photo identification and proof of debtor's social security number must be provided to the trustee. This information must be sent to the trustee via secured method, i.e. Uh, portal, encrypted uh, email, et cetera. Again, we don't want that information um, uh, being circulated uh, and we do need the full information um, from those documents in order for us to confirm the information with the bankruptcy filing. Um, at every telephonic 341 meeting, the trustee will verify the identifi identification of the debtor uh, by verifying on the record the type of photo ID and the last four digits of the debtor's social security number. Uh, what I usually do is ask the debtor on the record to, you know, again, provide the last four digits of their social security number. And also in most instances, it's a driver's license, which is the photo ID. I'll ask for them to recite for me the last four digits of their, of their, uh, of their uh, driver's license. So I can confirm that that is, at least in part, I believe that to be the person that's, uh, mm -hmm. that's the debtor here. Uh, there are a couple of logistical hur uh, hurdles that uh, are, we need to address as a result of, uh, again, having these telephonic uh, 341 meetings. Uh, and one is uh, uh, conducting the meeting and submitting an examination under oath of the debtor. There are essentially two ways in which this is, can be accomplished. Uh, the most common way is by the debtor uh, completing a attorney declaration. I'm going to have Don pull that one up. And this is the situation, uh, again, this is called an attorney declaration regarding confirmation of debtor's I identity and social security number. This information needs to be provided to uh, the trustee uh, prior, uh, at least one business day or 24 hours in advance of the 341 meeting. So this information uh, would be gleaned and obtained by the debtor's counsel 
um, at a time uh, prior to the 341 meeting when the debtor and council uh, actually met. Uh, this form, uh, again, would be filled out by the debtor's counsel and submitted to the bankruptcy trustee, and we take this information to confirm the debtor's uh, identification. Uh, these, this is provided in instances when uh, the debtor and counsel are not physically in the same location during the course of the 341 meeting. They both call in uh, and are not together. There is another uh, way in which the um, identification or the oath can be taken. And um, the alternative way is to have, uh, make arrangements for an independent third party authorized to present, uh, to administer the oath, or uh, the debtor's attorney can do that if authorized to administer the oath, like being a notary. Uh, they may perform this function. The declaration, which is uh, on the screen right now, would be uh, filled out um, after the, th uh, at the conclusion of the 341 meeting and sent to the, sent to the, uh, the trustee. The individual who's uh, administering the oath would be, uh, again, filling that out and providing it to the trustee. Uh, generally, what I do at the 341 meeting is after I confirm the Social Security number, uh, the last four and the driver's license, I will ask the debtor's counsel uh, to confirm for me that to the best of the knowledge and belief, the individual on the phone is their, their, their client, the debtor here. Jonathan, just one thing I just want to add in connection with this declaration. Yeah. A lot of lawyers, uh, a lot of attorney debtors counsel call me concerning this paragraph three, um, which says I met with the debtor in person. And many attorneys are not meeting with the debtors in person, not a problem. Um, the form can be modified. Uh, if you've met with the debtor via Zoom conference, um, so long as you confirm the debtor is who they say they are, I'll typically when I'm representing debtors, I'll ask them to hold their driver's license up next to their head so I can figure out who's who. Um, but you can, you can modify this. So it's not a requirement that you must meet with your client in person. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Don. Yeah. Um, you know, with the, with the um, ability to uh, Zoom with a, a, a client, uh, I think that that uh, is easily modifiable and, and you get the comfort that you can confirm that that individual is the same person that's filed the bankruptcy. Um, so that's, that's great, thank you for that. Um, now I have a, a, just a couple other observations regarding the telephonic 341 meeting that I wanted to bring to everybody's attention. Um, first, um, as you are all aware, uh, there's more than one 341 meeting conducted um, it, it, during 15 minute blocks, uh, anywhere from three to five, depending on the trustee. So when your clients call in, it just give them advance um, notice that they should call in and put their phone on mute and wait for their case to be called. Um, it's inevitable that during any particular rotation, I am required to make that, uh, uh, remind people that uh, to put their phones on mute. So if practitioners, uh, if you can remind your clients, it would just make uh, things go a little bit smoother not being interrupted by somebody saying, I'm on, I'm on the phone or, or answering questions. I've had debtors answer questions, uh, got on the phone and answer questions that wasn't related to their case. Their case hadn't been called. Um, the other thing uh, that's logistically been a little bit of an issue, but uh, I think we've all worked it out, is that you know, statutorily under uh, Section 341D of the Bankruptcy Code, we as trustees must orally examine the debtor to ensure that the debtor is aware of the following that the potential consequences of seeking a discharge in bankruptcy, including the effects of credit on credit history, 
the debtor's ability to file a petition under different chapters of the bankruptcy code other than chapter seven, the effect of receiving a discharge of debt under the bankruptcy code, the effect of reaffirming a debt, including the debtor's knowledge of the provisions of section 524D of the code. Uh, to comply with uh, this requirement, there's a handout uh, that uh, when we were meeting in person, uh, and Don will pull that up, it's a bankruptcy information sheet that debtors are um, asked by their counsel uh, to take a look at before they come up to the, uh, 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 to the hearing table and uh, conduct uh, where their meeting is conducted. So it, historically, and I'm sure all the trustees do that, they will, during the course of their 341 meeting, comply with this provision by asking the debtors if they've reviewed this bankruptcy document and they're, they're familiar with it. So now that we're not in person, um, I encourage all the practitioners to make sure that their, their clients receive a copy of this information sheet uh, prior to the filing of the bankruptcy, um, or at least before the 341 meeting and review it. Uh, so when I ask that question, uh, there is not uh, confusion as to what I'm talking about. Okay, and that is again statutorily we're required to uh, make sure that they uh, they are aware of those things, and how we do it is by giving that handout to them. Um, uh, my other uh, thing is if if you if your client needs an interpreter for the three forty one meeting, there are obviously we have a service that's available to all of our uh, old trustees to provide uh, uh, interpreter for essentially I think any. I don't think there's any language that I've come across that there hasn't been an interpreter available to uh, uh, to interpret. Because of the telephonic 341 meeting, it makes it a little bit more difficult logistically. So what I ask practitioners to do is give me heads up. Give me heads up that uh, you you're going to need an interpreter. Uh, because what I what I do is because um, we're doing in my office, I have my assistant get the interpreter on the phone and then call in. So if I know in advance that you're going to need that, I'll have it ready to go and it won't delay uh, your case or the other cases that are behind you. So please give us heads up, uh, you know, at least a week in advance, that would be helpful. Um, so one more thing I might add in connection with the kind of heads up. Uh, when I'm conducting my meetings, I'm always asking debtors counsel to alert me if there are any domestic support obligations because trustees have obligations to notify the uh, typically the governmental unit that's collecting the um, domestic support obligation and the person who's receiving it. Uh, so um, if counsel is aware of a domestic support obligation, they should make that known to the trustees so that they can fulfill their obligations in that respect. Right. So that's, that's uh, leading right into my next point. Uh, and then I think I gave you the DSO, Don, that you can pull out. So I encourage um, all of you to um, get a copy of the DSO form, have it completed and send it to the trustee, uh, preferably before the 341 meeting, because we will ask if in fact um, uh, there is a DSO um, requirement and that that form be completed. If I have it in advance, it just makes it smoother. I don't have to go chasing uh, you for that form uh, post uh, uh, post 341 meeting. And that could extend the time, you know, we may, if I have to file a motion to extend the time to object to discharge because you didn't provide it to us, it just makes it that much smoother and it's an easy thing to just get, fill, have your client fill it out and get it to the trustee. Because we have to, again, provide notification to the various taxing authorities or in Massachusetts Department of Revenue with respect to that DSO. A um, couple other things um, uh, regarding uh, 
just representing a debtor at a 341 meeting in advance of, of actually having them show up at a 341 meeting. Um, my practice, I have a couple things and I'll lay right on the table because anybody's been in front of me. I, I do ask debtors counsel to give me a brief explanation as to the reasons why the debtor needed to file bankruptcy. And the reason for that is, and I, that's a practice, at least in Springfield, and, and I'm, I don't know if anybody else in Worcester other than myself does this, but I'd like to know if there's, if there's anything in particular, you know, with a health problem or, 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 or you know, a, a business that failed, something that, uh, that uh, pre precipitated the filing that would be helpful for me to understand, that would be great. So I ask, I ask counsel to uh, just give me that brief explanation. Uh, maybe a lost job, divorce. I mean, there's a host of reasons why obviously people need to file bankruptcy, but if there's anything in particular that would be helpful, please bring that to my attention. I also want to uh, bring uh, practitioners uh, or make them uh, aware, uh, and probably most of you know this, but just in case you aren't, uh, debtors don't have the ability to continue to operate a chapter in a Chapter 7 of a business. And let me give you an example where uh, this becomes an issue. Let's assume the debtor runs a, uh, a restaurant as a sole proprietor and they think, oh, I can continue to operate that business because all the assets are subject to a lien of the SBA and there's no uh, equity in those assets available uh, for the benefit of unsecured creditors because the, the assets, the claim is underwater. Uh, now, you may think that that's appropriate because there's nothing beneficial to the creditors uh, if those assets were to be liquidated, but the reality is the only party that has authority to operate a business in a chapter seven is a trustee. Uh, and the court must authorize the trustee to operate the business and can do so just for a limited period of time if such operation is in the best interest of the estate and consistent with the ordinary liquidation of the estate. Now you may say, oh, well, these assets are fully secured or exempt that still doesn't give you a right to operate the business. I would suggest that you give the trustee a heads up because it may be something that a trustee can make a quick determination to abandon those assets if it makes sense for the, you know, it, it, if it's better, there's no benefit to the estate to keep hold up the debtor uh, because maybe it's their livelihood and they're either exempt or fully, uh, fully exempt or secured. So um, that would be something that I would suggest you give uh, notice to uh, the bankruptcy trustee as soon as possible. One of the things I also do is uh, during the course of my questioning, and you'll hear that this afternoon when we go through the uh, uh, when we go through the uh, uh, mock 341 meeting, I ask debtors counsel, uh, debtors rather, if they have consulted a lawyer in the last four years for any reason other than for the filing of this bankruptcy petition, and that question uh, at times has elicited answers that yes, I have. Uh, and what was that for? Well, I had a personal injury claim uh, that's still pending uh, that I've hired this counsel for. Now, again, uh, hopefully that information would be uh, gleaned and um, by debtor's counsel and properly put on the bankruptcy schedules beforehand, but sometimes um, just doesn't happen. So I wanted to make you aware of that. Um, the other thing is that uh, the last thing I guess I want to share with there are a few other things. Uh, personal injury claims. Personal injury claims um, uh, inevitably, um, one reason or another, and, and even this one I just mentioned, they just for, for some reason uh, fail to um, provide notice uh, to their debtor's counsel that uh, they have a claim. Um, 
so if there is a claim, um, my suggestion is, uh, even if it's listed, obviously if it's listed, uh, you want to make sure that the lawyer that's handling the claim on behalf of the debtor is immediately notified of the fact that the debtor had filed bankruptcy because the debtor uh, and that lawyer have no authority to try to settle that or continue with the litigation unless uh, the claim is abandoned or uh, on some occasions the uh, trustee will actually employ special as special counsel the lawyer that's been handling that personal injury claim to pursue that so i just want to make sure that uh, you know e even if you're aware of it which hopefully you would be you make sure that you uh, notify that counsel so they don't continue to do work where they may not be compensated for that work because they weren't properly employed by the bankruptcy estate um so uh that's what i have uh regarding that and if there are any either the trustees that are on the panel may have any further questions uh comments i'll be happy to um, entertain those. Otherwise, I'm going to turn it over to Ann to talk about uh, post-341 issues. Um, with respect to uh, after the meeting of creditors, after the 341 meeting, um, uh, and actually before I discuss that, I want to just uh, highlight key dates. The first key date is the um, date of the filing of the bankruptcy, because that date determines what assets are in the bankruptcy estate versus what assets are not in the bankruptcy estate. For example, we keep talking about personal injury claims. Uh, if uh, the car crash, heaven forbid, if the car crash happens the day after you file the bankruptcy, it's not an asset of the bankruptcy case. If the car crash happened the day before, it is an asset of the bankruptcy case. So as a practitioner, you need to absolutely be sure with your client, this is the day I'm filing the bankruptcy. Is, is anything changed in the last three days and the last uh, weeks uh, before? So the petition date is very important when it comes to um, uh, the what assets are bankruptcy assets. Uh, the next important date, of course, is the date of the uh, meeting of creditors. And um, that date, um, uh, uh, and then at the conclusion of the meeting of creditors, there's a 30-day period, and that's the deadline, 30 days after the conclusion of the meeting of creditors for any party to object to an exemption. And typically, that's the trustee's job to object to exemptions, but it's a short time frame. It's a 30-day period. Of course, parties can get extensions, but the conclusion of the meeting of creditors, you've got the 30 days um, for exemptions. Uh, the next deadline is a 60-day deadline um, and it's from the first scheduled uh, meeting of creditors, you add 60 days, and that's the deadline for either objecting to the discharge order, saying that this creditor, uh, this debtor is not entitled to a discharge whatsoever, or objecting to a specific debt, saying that specific debt should not be discharged because there's been some kind of fraud. So, uh, bankruptcy is very much uh, deadline uh, driven. It's driven by uh, specific uh, timeframes. And uh, you've got a 30 day one for this, uh, ex these exemptions and a, a 60 day one. The good news is the, um, uh, well, it's the good news, but the discharge deadline or objection to discharge deadline is set right forth on that um, notice that is sent around to all creditors right at the outset of the case. So you'll see that deadline right right from the outset. Um, what are we when we're talking about discharge? 
um, that is the goal. That's what you want when you file bankruptcy. You want to get a, uh, a, a discharge of the unsecured debt. Um, parties can object. Uh, and in my experience, what I found is objections tend to have to do with some kind of fraud in the inducement. And that is when um, there's been a promise, not just a promise to pay, but financial statements shown or allegations or assertions made at the inception, at the time that the loan is given or at the time that the business transaction is given. So uh, fraud in the inducement is typically one of, the, one of the big issues that I've seen um, for when I'm a trustee or concerns when I'm a debtor. Um, when you're representing folks, uh, you want to be concerned about fraudulent transfers. You want to be concerned about transfers for, for um, insufficient uh, equity, for insufficient uh, compensation. Um, and questions need to be asked at the beginning of the case, before you file the case, have you paid your relatives any money? Have you transferred any assets to your relatives? And you want to look back four years, five years, you want to look back a, a decent period of time uh, to review if payments were made to insiders, if payments were made, uh, uh, or if preferences were made. Uh, you know, have you, have you uh, used one credit card to pay off another credit card? So these kinds of discharge, dischargeability, and uh, uh, discharge of particular debt, these kinds of concerns under 523 of the Bankruptcy Code and 727 of the Bankruptcy Code are very much something that you want to focus on before you file the bankruptcy, but that may be what you have to handle afterwards. And what I mean by that is the trustee will pursue that, the trustee will pursue the non-exempt assets, uh, and the trustee will um, maybe, of course, be asking for more documentation if, it, if it's a complicated case. Um, a key, if we, a key takeaway, please, is that the granting of a discharge in bankruptcy does not equal a abandonment of all the assets of the debtor. And uh, trustees know this all too well, and I hope now practitioners will know this all too well. It's two different tracks and two different trains. Uh, you get a discharge because it, the, no party's objected and it appears like you've disclosed your assets. There may be a non-exempt uh, car that the trustee still has to auction and sell. There may be some question about bank accounts that the trustee is still in the process of investigating. Those assets are not uh, abandoned or not in any way, they're still uh, subject to inquiry and subject uh, potentially to sale by, by uh, the trustee. So those are two different distinct things. Uh, it's great to get a discharge order, but understand you still have to answer to the trustee in terms of potential um, assets for recovery. That I'm going real fast because I know we want to get to the, to the um, uh, we stop at one o'clock, correct, gentlemen? <laughs> or we go to one thirty? Uh, it it is one, but I'm sure we we went five minutes over. Okay. Hopefully we wouldn't lose anybody on this phone call. All right. So then, I guess the other things about after the three forty one, um, there are a few assets that could be recouped uh, six months after the bankruptcy, one hundred eighty days, that is, and that's uh, inheritance that your debtor might get. Uh, that's property settlements from divorce or uh, death benefits. So those kind of things you do want to be concerned about, uh, asking about those and be concerned about those. And um, that's all I have to say. Thank you. I, I was corrected. I go until two, not one. Yeah, right. But I think so. what, five minutes after. 
Oh, to yeah, I said it wrong, yeah. Trustees have a lot of power, but we yet have the power to bend time. We're working <laughs> on it, but we don't have the power because it really would be a helpful tool if you think about that. Um, two things I wanted to mention um, on the 341 meeting stuff, um, and that is um, because the meetings are being conducted electronically, <clears throat> I'm seeing two things. One, clients tend to be a little bit more nervous um, because their lawyer's not there. So, you know, I think it is important to talk to your client in advance because they get on the phone and they, they hear all this background stuff because there could be lots of people talking and they're, I've had debtors that just like drop out, they're gone. They were there, they're gone. They've like freaked out. And so, you know, the lawyer has to drop off the phone, call the client back, you know, say you're in a room, there's a lot of people in there, don't worry what they're saying, they're not talking about you, it's, you know, they're all, it's a different case, come back on, it'll be all right. So. There is some there is some situations there um, that are tough, and you want to talk to your clients so they're going to be okay with that. Because I've seen them, people just like I said, they just they're gone. Like when, it, when it's in person, they don't flee, but on the phone they can flee. The the other thing is that because they're not there, they may blurt something out, and you you can't kick them, you can't stop them, you can't correct them. It's like done. So you know this is the other kind of interesting dynamic um, that's happened. And so, you know, it's like, it's on the record, then the lawyer on the, on the phone is you know, trying to do something, but it's really, it's almost impossible. So, you know, be aware of those things. And, um, you know, I, I think your clients want to answer the question that the trustee asked. And it's when then they tail in to five other areas that, you know, it's starting to go down fast, but you can't stop the debtor because you're, you're, you're not there. So, and it's hard to jump on the phone because the person that's talking, you know, usually has control. It's hard to hear like three other people if you're even trying to stop your client. So just kind of be aware of those things that lead to some awkward and uncomfortable um, uh, spots. So, potentially beneficial to the trustee. Potentially. You know, many trustees think it's much more beneficial to have the debtor right in front of them because the trustee is a presence and it's harder not to tell the truth if you are face-to-face, -face, right? So there's also that balance. Um, I'm not sure which is better or worse, um, but there's definitely that balance. The other thing I would say is that as trustees, many times the best information I get is from creditors in the case. So, you know, as debtors counsel, I think you wanna be mindful of who your creditor body is and who may drop a dime on your client because that's frequently how you get a tip uh, many times they may turn out to be nothing, but in many cases they may turn out to be something. So we refer to that uh, oftentimes as the X factor. It's the ex spouse, it's the ex business partner uh, that often drop the dime on on a debtor. So um, just uh, you know, just be aware of that. Obviously, you want the clients are required to tell the truth, and they're under oath, and they sign these under the pains of penalties of perjury. But uh, I emphasize um, a number of times throughout the preparation process about the, the need to be um, accurate, truthful, and um, and remind people about the X factor as well. The other thing, just to, what I do, Don, and I don't know if Don and, and you do this, but um, I ask the clients to try to get on the phone a little bit earlier so they can hear other 341 meetings to see how they're conducted. So we, you know, hopefully take a little bit out of the sting or the nervousness when they hear what the questions are and how the, the, the trustee uh, presides over that meeting. 
The other, the last thing is that, um, and I don't know if it's just lately because it's 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 telephonic, but I, I have to interrupt some counsel sometimes because they are testifying on behalf of their their client, and uh, it really is the debtor that's required to answer these questions, not their counsel. I I appreciate that there are times when they want to, you know, they need to, you know, expand on something that's helpful, but they're not there to testify. Uh, it's their their clients that debtors under oath. Yeah, I would add, um, I'll just add one more thing and that is most people have their social security number um, memorized. No one has their license memorized. So whenever I, you're going to be, every client's going to be asked that. So make sure your client has their driver's license with them and it's not in somebody's car, you know, three towns over. I've had that happen. Or they can't, you know, they didn't know they would need it or they have to go outside to get it. So, you know, and then this just, you know, leads to confusion and delay and things like that. So make sure they have their, um, they know their social security number probably, um, but um, they definitely will not know their driver's license, last four digits of their driver's license or their, um, um, or maybe they're using a um, passport. And Can I just answer a quick online question about abandonment? Um, there's two ways that assets are abandoned in bankruptcy. One is specifically, I've got a house and I'm about to refinance or sell or do something and it's all exempt and I and the trustees file a specific uh, notice and, and request for abandonment and that's allowed by the court. The second and only other way to get some miscellaneous stuff abandoned is for the case to close, period, that's it. Either you have a special order or the case gets closed. Those are the only two ways to abandon an asset. Thank you. Okay, no, super. So all right, ready? so um, yeah. So we like to, what we like to do is a um, a brief, and it, it's it's not complex, but it's a brief three forty one meeting, so that you kind of get the flow of how these cases are now being done telephonically. It is it's absolutely confusing, you know, the first time you do it. It's it's a little awkward, um, but hopefully we can give you the sense. Jonathan is a Chapter Seven trustee. Um, I am the befuddled debtor. Uh, my counsel um, is Ann White. Let me share the screen with you. I can show you the, um, you can see the hypothetical uh, right there. Um, and it's really, it's a, it's a debtor with a lot of um, consumer debt, um, separated, um, some back child support, a couple motor vehicles. And um, you know, that, that's really about it. So Jonathan, whenever you're ready. Okay, uh, we are on the record. Uh, good afternoon, I'm Jonathan Goldsmith. I'm the uh, Chapter 7 Bankruptcy Trustee in this case. Uh, this is case number 20-4200. Uh, I'm gonna ask the individual on the phone, the, uh, the debtor, to please identify themselves for the record. Oh. Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear uh, me? Could, I, I can hear you, can you hear me? Yep, okay, good. I just wanna make sure you could hear me. Uh, this is Donald Lassman. And I'm attorney Ann White uh, representing Mr. Lassman. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Lassman, um, would you please raise your right hand? Do okay. you saw me swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth on the pans and penalties of perjury? I do. Okay, there's an informational handout that explains different aspects of the bankruptcy process. Have you reviewed that before? Um, yes, my, my lawyer sent that to me at one of our early meetings. Okay. And I do have a, an attorney declaration. Uh, and if you could just confirm for me the last four digits of your social security number, please. 
one, two, three, four. And the last four digits of your driver's license. Uh, five, six, seven, eight. Thank you. And uh, uh, Attorney White, uh, can you confirm for me that to the best of your knowledge and belief, the individual we have on the phone is your client, uh, Mr. Lastman? Yes, I recognize his voice. Uh, are there any creditors uh, on the telephone for this uh, for this 341 meeting? There are no creditors that appear to be present. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Uh, Lastman, uh, are you required to make any domestic support obligations, child support, alimony, or anything else that would be deemed to be a domestic support obligation? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, my attorney asked me about that, and I gave her all that information. Okay. Uh, Ms. White, uh, Attorney White, would you uh, please provide the DSO statement to me uh, post-341 meeting? You can email it or fax it to me, but uh, as soon as you get that to me, uh, the quicker I'll be able to administer this case. I appreciate it. I'll get it right over. Okay. And uh, Mr. Lastman, have you filed bankruptcy before? Uh, no, this is the first time. Okay. Um, Attorney White, if you would just give me a brief explanation as a reason for the filing of this bankruptcy case. Well, basically between uh, his credit cards and um, uh, the not getting the child support, uh, so a loss of revenue and um, uh, some expenses, he, he just can't make ends meet. Okay, thank you. Um, Mr. Lastman, I have a few questions to ask of you. Uh, let me begin by asking, what was the last time you used a credit card? Uh, well, my lawyer said I really shouldn't be using credit cards if I'm going to file bankruptcy. So it's been probably three or four months at least. All right. Well, let me, um, three or four months from now, but you this bankruptcy case was filed about a month ago. So let me have you go back from the date that you filed this bankruptcy case, uh, which uh, was uh, October 31st. So go back... Uh, uh, 90 days from that date, did you use a credit card during that period of time? Uh, it's possible I did. Like I, I might have gone to a mini mart or gas or something, but if I used it at all during that period of time, I would have sent in a payment to the credit card company. So I, I didn't get any further behind. So you, have you bought any big ticket items within that period of time? And what I mean by big ticket items, anything worth more than, let's say, $750, a big screen oh. or anything of that nature? No, certainly not. I lead a very modest lifestyle. Okay. And um, you listed a 2013 Jeep Cherokee uh, with 105,000 miles. You put it down at $2,500. How did you arrive at that value? Because my blue book uh, review of that, that, that vehicle suggests that that car has a value of $10,500. Uh, so um, I just use the NADA. Maybe the blue book is different. So um, my counsel, I did give my uh, counsel a copy of what I use, so we can send that over to you. Okay. Uh, well, in any event, I will, I'll be happy to take a look at that, but it does appear that um, there is, uh, there, if there is equity in it, that would be exempt in any event, but uh, just curious as to how you came up with that value. Uh, uh, Mr. Lastman, have you consulted a lawyer for any reason other than for the filing of this bankruptcy case in the last four years? No. Uh, do you have any stock sponsor investments of any nature? Uh, nothing, not at all. Have you in the last four years, have you had a retirement account, a, um, a stock account, mutual fund, U.S. savings bonds, or anything else of that nature that would be deemed to be an investment? No, nothing at all. 
Okay. Um, have you inherited any money or property within the last year? No. Have you, did you expect to inherit any money or property within the next, uh, let's say six months? I do not. So I'm sure your counsel has uh, made you aware of the fact that uh, if you have a right to inherit any money or property, uh, whether it's through bequests, a life insurance policy, or otherwise, that that right to that property or money uh, uh, needs to be disclosed uh, if you have a right to inherit that within that period of time, 180 days from the day you file bankruptcy. Now, just to be clear, it doesn't mean that you physically uh, get that within that 180 days. It's just that you're entitled to it. So, for example, if somebody a month from now passes away and in their will they leave you money, you may not get it until the, the, the will is probated, but you are entitled to that. So that needs to be disclosed to your counsel and that information needs to be amended on the bankruptcy schedules. Are you aware of that? Yes, my, my lawyer told me about that and I'll be sure to let her know if anything happens. Okay. Uh, what I'd like to do as part of uh, my, um, my work as a trustee and my responsibility is to get 90 days worth of bank statements from you. So what I'd like to do is, uh, again, you filed this bankruptcy case on October 31st. Um, so I'd like to get uh, the, the statements from, um, why don't we say August, September, and October, the three months worth of bank statements. Do you think you can get those to me within the next two weeks? Yeah, I think, um, I think my lawyer might have them. I already have them and uh, Jonathan, I'll get them right over. Great, thank you. So um, I only have a couple other quick questions for you. Do you have any uh, antiques, uh, fine jewelry or collections worth more than $1,000? Uh, no, I, I don't. And is the Jeep Cherokee uh, your only motor vehicle? No, no. I have one other. I have a. Um, I have one other vehicle that has a loan on it. Um, uh, a, um, a Chevy, and um, that, that's it. So I have the two vehicles: the Jeep, no loan whatsoever, and uh, another vehicle that has a loan. Actually, you know. I say a loan, that might've been a lease, I forget. I don't have the bankruptcy documents in front of me, um, but my counsel will remind me. Yeah, um, it's a, a trustee, it's a lease, and yeah. I can get you those documents if you'd like. Uh, have you looked, reviewed those lease documents? I, I reviewed them and there's no uh, cash value or there's no way to uh, option to uh, repurchase. Okay, uh, then um, I'm satisfied with that representation. Uh, by you, Attorney White. So uh, have you, uh, Mr. Lastman, operated or owned a business within the last six years? Uh, no, I have not. In the, in the last uh, four years, have you sold, given away, or gifted anything worth more than $1,000? For example, have you sold a car, given away anything worth more than $1,000, gifted? No, no, I have not. And um, I noticed, uh, again, you owe about $17,000 owed to the uh, mother of your children for back child support. Uh, were you a subject, uh, were you a party to a divorce proceeding within that period of time or um, within the last four years? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. And when was that divorce finalized? Um, that was, uh, I believe that was 2014. Might have been 2015. Are you entitled to anything in the future as a result of that divorce? Any no, we, we, didn't, we didn't have any property to divide at the time. Okay. And has your job status changed since the filing of this bankruptcy petition? Uh, it has not. I'm still just employed part-time. Okay. 
So um, at this juncture, um, I don't have any further questions, but I am going to continue this to my next rotation date. And that rotation date is December, uh, January 20th. And I'm going to continue it to that date at 9 o'clock. Uh, if you provide me the information they've requested uh, within that period of time, there's a very good chance that you're not going to be required to uh, uh, show up at the next 341 meeting, but you need to confirm that with your council needs, it will confirm it with me. So let me just summarize what I'm looking for. Again, I am looking for 90 days worth of bank statements and uh, the DSO statement filled out and returned to me as soon as possible. So again, I will continue this to a date certain and that will be uh, January 20th at nine o'clock. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so that is, that's kind of how it goes, right? Yeah. Um, in this case, my client did not throw me under the bus. He's answered, answered carefully with pretty good knowledge. He didn't remember whether it was a lease or a loan, but he didn't say, oh, what about this transfer? Oh, what about this, this asset? Oh, I have a tort lawsuit that I never told my client about. I mean, my attorney about, but it does happen and you don't want that to happen. You want to ask as many possible questions in, in, in detail uh, so that your client doesn't uh, uh, shock you at the meeting. Um, as a trustee, I would say maybe the only other kind of question I ask if they have any trust. I ask obviously if there's any, any um, if they're beneficiary of any trust, if they have any kind of uh, litigation or anybody they can sue or, or considering suing. Um, uh, I ask if they've ever operated a business. And um, I usually identify the bank accounts that they have and ask them if they have any other bank accounts. One time the person said, well, yeah, I have this other account, but it's for just for my health or something. You know, he's kind of thought he could just hold aside an, a, a separate account. But, um, um, and I asked about transfers. Uh, I, I uh, use a different number. I don't use $1,000. I use a higher number, $5,000. But I want to know about any sales, any transfers of any kind in the last several years. Yeah, I guess I'd say two things. I also ask, I'll ask a debtor, have they ever owned real estate ever? Yeah. yeah, because there's always something that comes out of that. So I, I, I don't okay, limit it. Well, I apologize for missing that, but that is uh, absolutely, yeah. You know, because that's something, and nine out of 10, you know, will say yes, but they had it this long ago. Um, and, and so that I can find helpful. Um, I, I have a question from the, um, a member of the audience asking if anyone on the panel um, has seen forensic accountants used to help analyze bank statements um, in connection with individual cases or corporate cases that you might have been a trustee in? Uh, I have for corporate cases. Um, I can't say that I've done it for any individual cases, but I certainly in the past have used it for a forensic accountant to assist me in uh, fraudulent transfer preference uh, analysis as well in corporate yeah. And is it, is it costly? Uh, yes, yes, can be. Okay. Um, and generally it's, uh, you know, got to have money in the estate or, or the accountant's got to be willing to, uh, ride with you in hopes that there will be money, uh, that will be sufficient to pay them their fees. So, so, so as a trustee, you've been engaged forensic accounting services in some, in, in, in some cases where it's necessary. Yes. And how about you? Um, I've certainly used accountants, uh, for precise work. But I, I find when I'm representing a debtor that I myself am doing 
some form of forensic accounting where I'm, I'm looking over a year or two years worth of bank statements just to look for those uh, anomalies to be sure they haven't forgot to tell me about the storage facility they have that has extra things in it or, or um, additional income or something. It, it's helpful to look through folks' bank statements. It's helpful. And there was a note from one of the people attending to be careful when you're talking with your accounts to avoid legal jargon. And, and I get that sometimes. Certainly, as um, even as a trustee, when I'll ask people, you know, do you own your home? They'll say, no, the bank does, which I think is very insightful in terms of the level of understanding and kind of comprehension. And it actually is particularly true in cases where English is not the first language. And so owning real estate in one language doesn't kind of come across the same way, particularly in connection with trusts. That's where I found it really prickly. Um, it just it, the, the, the kind of the interpretation of what that means and how it's, uh, you know, how it's said and so forth. So I think certainly as debtors counsel, you have to be careful when you're asking for information because I know as a trustee, I'll get an answer and debtors counsel looks at their client and then they're looking at me and it was just kind of, they didn't really think about how they were saying it. So I think you've got, you have to kind of keep it, keep it simple. Um, because the clients, are, they're going to be nervous uh, and they don't, they don't really necessarily know. And many of them typically have, you know, they've kind of kept their head in the sand. Um, they, they don't want to know a lot of stuff. Um, they just kind of want to come to the meeting and leave. So um, it can be, it can be, it can be tough. It can be tough. All right. Um, anything else anyone wants to add? If not, um, I think that um, we're all set. And anything you want to add, or Jonathan, anything you want to add? No, I think we. That's great. All right, so thanks everyone for attending, and um, there are upcoming events that you heard um, about um, uh, at the beginning of the program. The BBA, the bankruptcy section, has lots of great events all year long. If you're not currently a member, certainly I suggest you take a look at the um, Boston Bar Association's website, and in particular the sections page, the bankruptcy section, very vital and um, lots of programs upcoming to kind of keep you up to date for the, um, the incoming wave of bankruptcies that um, everybody suspects. So thanks everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks guys. Thanks.